1: It's another week and we're here with you again.
0: And I think that we should just get into it because I have a bit of a longer case.
1: Oh, we should get right into it. It sounds like an intense case.
0: It really is. It's another one of those that I had to stop myself from writing notes.
1: Those ones are always the worst because you always want to learn more and more.
0: That's how I felt with this case. But we don't make a habit of having multi-part episodes. And so I did my best to fit it all into one. If you guys want more, then you're going to have to agree to let us do multi-part episodes. (laughs) And you'll have to wait a week in between.
1: I wonder how many of our listeners would actually prefer that.
0: Yeah, let us know if you would. Or if you like our one-hour-ish type episodes, give or take. Regardless, this is the case that I have prepared for you today. I am covering a case that I quite honestly didn't think I'd ever cover. It is a well-known case. I'm betting that most of the people listening to us right now have heard at least something about these two brothers who murdered their parents. And that's why I was tending to veer away from it. It is highly controversial. Many believe that justice was served, that two spoiled brats got their just comeuppance. But many others feel like their punishment was too harsh, that when it came down to it, the brothers were victims. These two brothers have been behind bars since 1990 for a double homicide committed almost 35 years ago. This case is decades old. What perked my newfound interest in it is that there is new evidence that has recently been discovered that could possibly change things for these two murderers. Did it change your opinion of them? Or if justice was served? Surprisingly, with this case, I'm kind of on the fence, which is unusual because people are usually all for one side or the other, and I can't really make up my mind.
1: That is usually not you. That's usually my role.
0: It's true. So we'll see if we switch roles in this one. And if you have a more concrete stance on it. I doubt it. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I do have to admit that the more I researched this case, the more engrossed I became with the details. There is so much to this case. It is one that we could do a bunch of episodes on. And if this is a case you happen to not be familiar with, I will do my best to cover it as thoroughly as possible in the time we have today. Now that I've said all this, guess who I'm going to talk about? Menendez brothers. Yes, the infamous Menendez brothers, Lyle and Eric. Just in case you guys ever wonder, the majority of the time, Melissa and I don't even tell each other the cases that we are covering until we start recording. So Melissa hasn't seen the title of the episode yet like you all have. That's why I asked.
1: It's always a surprise for us. It is. The only thing we share is initials. That way we know we're not covering at least the same case for the
0: same week. It's true. Because that would not be good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. Although there have been times when we've researched the same case or been working on research for the same case.
0: That is true. And then we usually do a friend a solid and share what we have found. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) After we decide who gets to cover that one. It's Christy. It's always Christy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a bully. <laughs> no
1: way, I was thinking, well, you cover them better. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant, Christy takes all the cases.
0: No. <laughs> I thought you're calling me a hog. Oh. <laughs> she takes them all. Actually, I only take 50% because we're a team. <laughs> and a one that I think works well. <laughs> In our eyes, at least. To get a proper grasp on this case, we definitely need to start at the beginning for this one. Jose Enrique Menendez was born on May 6, 1944 in Havana, Cuba. He was the youngest of three children born to Jose Francisco Menendez, who went by Pepin, and his wife, Maria Carlotto Menendez. Both of his parents were born in Pinar del Rio, Cuba, and had become somewhat well-known in their local area for being star athletes. Jose Sr. was an exceptional and popular soccer player, and Maria was so established as a swimmer that she was elected into Cuba's Sports Hall of Fame. Oh, that's pretty impressive. It is. Jose Sr also owned an accounting firm, so the family did well for themselves. About a year after Fidel Castro came into power in 1959, Jose Sr and Maria worried for the welfare of their children. Not being able to just pick up and leave, they decided to send their youngest child, Jose, to America for a better chance at life. Jose was 16 years old at this time. He left Cuba by himself and stayed in his cousin's attic upon first arriving in the state of Pennsylvania. He had zero money and didn't speak a word of English. That would be so scary. It really would. However, with life skills indoctrinated in him from his parents, it would not take long for Jose to go from rags to riches. He literally lived the American dream. So he was super hardworking? Absolutely he was. Very driven. Jose took after his parents in regards to athletics as well as business sense. He himself was a cut above the rest at sports and would eventually make a name for himself professionally. Taking after his mother, Jose trained in swimming. He was so good that he earned a full four-year scholarship to Southern Illinois University. Jose had always dreamt of attending an Ivy League school, but his finances at the time wouldn't allow it. He vowed that if he ever had children, he would make sure that they would. Some good did come out of the school he went to, though. It was at this university where he met his future wife, Kitty. Mary Louise Anderson went by the name of Kitty. She was the daughter of Charles Milton Anderson and May Helen Anderson. Charles owned Oaklawn Heating and Air Conditioning Company, so also a successful man. They had four sons together, followed by one daughter, Kitty. Oh, I bet you she was a princess in her family. <laughs> Absolutely. Four older brothers. hmm Oh, man. And then this cute little girl. When Kitty entered grammar school, her father actually left the family to marry a different woman. The divorce, as you can imagine, wasn't a pleasant one. When this happened, her mother went to work for United Airlines at Midway Airport just outside of Chicago. Some reports state that Charles would beat his wife May in front of the children, so he was a dirtbag. After her father left, Kitty became a little more reserved and struggled with depression. When she graduated high school, she went to Southern Illinois University. She studied communications and worked at the university in their broadcasting department. She helped produce content for radio and TV and did earn her degree. Kitty met Jose in 1962 when she was in her final year of uni. She was three years older than him, so she was getting ready to finish school as he was getting started. Kitty was a beauty pageant queen, and Jose was smitten. This just sounds so cute. It really does in the beginning. It was said that Kitty and Jose fell for one another quickly. They eloped in 1963 after Kitty graduated, and the two lovebirds moved to New York City. By this time, Jose's parents had moved to New York from Cuba as well. It was said that they kind of looked down on Kitty for coming from a broken home.
1: It's not her fault her dad was a dirtbag.
0: Absolutely not. She was a victim of that.
1: But they looked down on her for it.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess it probably didn't go along with their traditional values.
1: Right, I can see that, but still seems pretty harsh. Yeah, give the girl a break. Did it create animosity between them? Not really that I read of. Okay, so she just let it go.
0: Yeah. It just said that they kind of looked down on her. They weren't thrilled about the idea. Mm. But they eloped. They were already married. Jose continued to excel in sports, and after Southern Illinois University, he won another athletic scholarship to Queens College. Kitty found a job teaching, and Jose worked as a dishwasher at a restaurant in Manhattan while he completed his degree in accounting they sound like such hard workers. They really were. Five years into their marriage, Kitty and Jose celebrated the birth of their first son and future killer, Joseph Lyle Menendez. He was born in New York City on January 10th, 1968. Although his first name is legally Joseph, he went by Lyle his entire life. Even his court documents say Lyle, so that's what I'll call him. Not long after Lyle was born, the little family moved to New Jersey. They made the decision for Kitty to quit her teaching job and focus on raising their son. She wanted to get her master's degree in communications, but did come to terms with being a wife and mother. She would support her husband in fulfilling his dreams. On November 27, 1970, in Blackwood, New Jersey, the Menendez family welcomed another son into the world, Eric Galen Menendez, their second future murderer. Jose was focused and had been taught to succeed at whatever he did. When the boys were young, he worked for Hertz Car Rental Company. In 1973, he became the chief financial officer for the company. By 1979, at the age of 35, he rose to become the worldwide general manager for Hertz. Oh, good for him. Yeah, when he set a goal, he reached it. Jose's income allowed the two boys to attend Princeton Day School. Although trained in accounting, it didn't take long for Jose to develop an interest in the entertainment industry. By the early 1980s, Jose worked his way up to being the head of RCA Records. What? How did he go from car rental to RCA Records? That seems like quite a joke. Oh, it's actually not, and I'll explain it. But he did become the executive vice president and chief operating officer worldwide for RCA Records. Among the many bands that he signed were Duran Duran, The Eurythmics, and Menudo. RCA Records was a big deal, and honestly, they still are. I believe Pink, Foo Fighters, Britney Spears, and Shakira are still with them. And in the past, they signed artists like Elvis Presley, David Bowie, and Aretha Franklin. Two things to point out about this job switch for him, and this will answer your question. Within RCA Records, Jose had been tasked with building up the label's Latin music line, and Menudo, whom he signed, was a Latin group. Also, and this is where it answers your question, Hertz Car Rentals used to be a subsidiary of Radio Corporation of America, or RCA. So this is how he worked his way up to that position. It was within the same parent company. Oh, that makes so much more sense now. Yeah. (laughs) When I learned that, I was like, oh, okay, yes.
1: (laughs) I can see the jump now.
0: Yeah. Eventually, Jose became interested in the movie industry. So he left RCA Records in 1986 and started to work for Carol Coke Pictures. They were well known for producing the Rambo movie franchise. By this time, Jose was raking in the big bucks and moved his family to a mansion in Beverly Hills. This spacious Spanish-style home was built on 722 North Elm Drive in Beverly Hills. It is an area known as The Flats and is about a block south of Santa Monica Boulevard. The family rented this house while their other mansion on Mulholland Drive in Calabasas, California was being renovated. The house was white with a red tile roof. It was over 9,000 square feet with multiple bedrooms and bathrooms. It had a guest house, a pool, and of course, a private full-size tennis court. Previously to the Menendez family moving in, the house had been occupied by Michael Jackson, Elton John, and Prince.
1: Oh, that is awesome.
0: <laughs> right? And I believe a Saudi prince even rented it afterwards. So I feel like by the time Jose moved his family into this home, he was probably feeling like, I made it.
1: Oh, it sounds like
0: it. Mm-hmm. Considering that he showed up in America with no money in his pockets and not speaking English.
1: Yeah, this sounds like a pretty amazing story.
0: It did start out that way. Growing in success, Jose decided to take on a challenge. He moved to a struggling movie company named International Video Entertainment. They had been in the red, but after a few short years, Jose brought them back into black. Eventually, this company merged with another company, being known as Live Entertainment, and then Artesian Entertainment. Jose was the chief executive of this company at the time of his death. Unsurprisingly, Jose did not become as successful as he did by spreading kindness and cheer. He was ruthless, and he did whatever he felt was necessary to reach his goals. A previous colleague told Vanity Fair about Jose, quote, He had an incredible dedication to business. He was focused, specific about what he wanted from business, very much in control. He believed that whatever had to be done should be done, with no heart if necessary. Oh,
1: I wonder if that's the kind of father he was, too. He
0: was. Jose was said to be cruel and abusive at times and was not well-liked by his co-workers. He was actually hated by many. But I am sure that at the end of the night, he just dried his tears with $100 bills. Because I would. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sad for you. (laughs) What you said really hurt my feelings. Let me tap that little tear away with this $100 bill. That's just what I pictured. (laughs) Because he didn't seem to care what anybody thought of him. Right. I want to point out now that the things I will share about Jose and Kitty are in no way trying to victim blame. It is just what happened. The picture-perfect painting of this family, a mogul man with a beauty pageant queen wife and two sons to carry on his name with money to burn, was not the American dream that it appeared to be. Unfortunately, this cutthroat business sense trickled down to his style of parenting and how he sometimes treated his wife. Lyle and Eric were expected to follow their heritage and excel at every endeavor. The boys played many sports and did do quite well at them. Jose hired personal coaches to make sure his sons were the best, and if they didn't do what he considered their best, he allegedly let them know it. It was said that Jose, quote, worked his children to the bone, not only in sports, but in all aspects of life. Jose controlled every aspect of his children's lives. He had their days scheduled down to the hour. He decided when and what they ate, whom they could spend their time with, and even what they read. He is super controlling. But I was thinking he's treating his family like he did these businesses. Right. And he was successful with them. Right. So in his mind, I'm assuming he thought, well, this is successful in my business life. This is how I will make my children successful too. Okay. Not to excuse it, just trying to get some understanding. So he thought he could treat
1: human beings like a business entity. Right. With no actual human emotion attachment
0: to them. Correct. That's scary. A former swim coach of the boys told the LA Times in regards to Eric, quote, It seemed like Jose was so competitive. He was doing everything he could to try to make him better. But he was so completely overbearing, it had the opposite effect. Eric had so much less self-confidence because everything he did was never good enough. Having unrealistic expectations placed on them caused the boys to develop some physical ailments. They seemed to always have a stomach ache. They would grind their teeth and develop stutters. It was also said that they became volatile in regards to their own emotions and would get nasty when angered. Okay, now I'm starting to see the recipe for disaster. hmm it's starting to unravel. While attending Princeton Day School, the teachers tried to tell the Menendezes that their sons might have some learning challenges, but Jose would not hear of it. He refused to believe that his sons could have any flaws. After this, the teacher noticed that the homework they handed in was done at a much higher level than the work they did in class. This suggests that the homework was not being completed by the boys. What? Mm-hmm. So Jose just figured a way to get their marks up, and it wasn't by making the boys study harder. Did he just have somebody else fill out the
1: work for them, or did he stand over them, making them write down the correct answers and just drill sergeant the whole thing?
0: It sounded like the work was being done for them. Okay. Because it had to be done right. What the heck is that going to teach them? Well, he had an agenda with his children every hour was booked. So rather than take away their time with their private coach for swimming or tennis, someone had to get that homework done.
1: I thought he was a big picture guy, but it doesn't
0: seem that way. He's just, I want it all kind of guy. Okay. Appearance was so important to Jose that when Lyle began balding prematurely at age 14, Jose commanded him to wear a hairpiece. He wore it so consistently that it would take years before Eric would even discover that his big brother wore one. It wasn't until his father later tore it off his head in a fit of anger. What? Mm-hmm. Appearances were everything. And no son of his at 14 was going to be going bald.
1: Oh, no, that's just sad. He has no control over that. And it's probably from Jose's genetics.
0: Well, Jose had a good head of hair, so I'm not sure where it came oh, from. It was from Kitty's
1: genetics. <laughs> Actually, male part and baldness does follow your maternal line. <laughs>
0: Oh, does it? Yeah. And I'm not sure about Kitty's father or family. You know how you just spew
1: random facts and then you're like, how do I know that? Did I actually (laughs) learn that somewhere? But I'm pretty
0: sure I did learn that somewhere. It actually sounds familiar to me. So I think I might have learned it in the same spot. (laughs) But we don't know if it's true. (laughs) No. (laughs) Teachers also said that the boys behaved immaturely for their ages. One report said that Lyle, at age 14, still played with stuffed animals and would wet the bed. Alarm bells with the bedwetting, but could it have been because of the chronic stress he was under? Oh, definitely because of the chronic stress. As they got older, both boys played tennis. Lyle was very good at it, but Eric was exceptional. At his father's pushing, Eric ranked 44 in the United States as a junior. From the outside looking in, again, it seemed like this family had it all. Inside, although the boys lived in the lap of luxury, they felt a tremendous pressure to be the best at everything. Not really having parents whom they could turn to, the boys turned to one another for support. Eric looked up to Lyle, and Lyle watched out for Eric. Eric was softer spoken, and Lyle had a stronger personality. The boys would later say that they watched their father treat Kitty, their mother, like a doormat. He was described as being downright mean towards her. Jose was said to have had multiple affairs, and Kitty would just look the other way. Kitty had been devastated after her parents divorced, and she saw how hard it had been for her mother afterwards. Although they had started years prior, in 1981, when Kitty first found out about his affairs, she did leave him for several days. But Jose sweet-talked her into coming back home. It was believed that she returned more so for her sons than for Jose. Because she had this experience as a youth herself. Exactly. That's so sad. It is. Jose had his fun with different women, but had an actual relationship that lasted for years with a woman named Louise. No way. She also worked in business, and the two of them would travel together on business trips. Because Jose ran the company globally, he traveled a lot. Kitty found out about this second life with Louise in 1986. Jose had been with Louise for seven years by then. It was said that Kitty's depression spiraled after this discovery, and it was then that she began having suicidal ideations.
1: It would just seem that
0: much more of a betrayal, wouldn't it? It would. Like, it sounded like they had this whole life together. When he was in Manhattan with Louise, they would entertain and have people over. And it was just this open relationship.
1: Yeah, that just seems so wrong. Not that I would want to live through like a one night affair, but it would be such a betrayal
0: to know that this has been going on for seven years. Yeah, that's a full on relationship. That would rock your confidence. It really would. So there was a big shift in her after this point in time. And the boys saw it. They did. And they knew it was because of their dad's relationship. That I'm not sure of what the boys were aware of. Okay. They just reportedly said that they saw their dad treating her like garbage. Jose would make big decisions without consulting with or even informing his wife. Sadly, Kitty used a different way to cope. She was said to develop a drinking problem and became depressed to the point of being suicidal. Many question if she stayed because of the millions or to keep the family together. And it could have been both.
1: Oh, I think both. Mm -hmm. It's always both.
0: It is. Lyle described his parents' image like this, quote, My own father, he was a person of means and stature. And my mother was sort of a socialite type person. A country club person. No one's going to intervene in how they raised their family. When Lyle and Eric reached their teenage years, they started to rebel. On the outside, they looked like spoiled little rich kids acting out. In 1988... The boys and a friend began burglarizing homes in their neighborhood just for fun. They would take high-ticket items and cash just for the thrill. I read that in one home, they took $100,000 worth of stuff alone. Oh, it's the neighborhood they're living in too, right? Oh, they're in a very affluent area for sure. But they were stealing cash, jewelry, high-ticket price items. Mm. And all just for fun? Just for fun. They didn't need it. And the two brothers were doing it together? With another friend. Okay. I think how it had started is the one friend was like, hey, I know the combination to one of their other friends safe. And then they're like, let's go in. Let's break in and like take stuff and thought it would be fun. And then they enjoyed that thrill. So they hit a few more homes. And did they get caught and daddy had to bail them out? Oh, yeah. More than once. Jose was a proud man and would not allow his family name to be tarnished. Instead of holding his sons responsible for their actions, he would use his money and influence to get them out of trouble. This rebellion continued until they ripped off a family who wouldn't be paid off. Jose was said to be more angry that the boys got caught than he was over them stealing. Lyle was 20, and Eric hadn't turned 18 yet, so Jose convinced Eric to take the blame for the entire incident. Jose knew that Eric would just get a slap on the wrist since he was a minor, and he didn't want anything to get in the way with Lyle going to Princeton University. It was all about the status. Right.
1: Are you sure he wasn't into crime? No, he wasn't. Wow, because he just seems so okay
0: with it. He's just this huge mogul. I guess he doesn't have strong values then. Oh, no, he was cutthroat in business. It didn't matter. Whatever you have to do to get the job done. Eric did take the fall, but Jose was right. He only got community service, and I believe they had to pay the family restitution. Eric also was ordered to attend therapy with a Dr. Jerome Oziel, whom we will be talking more about throughout this case. I just wanted to point out that this is when Dr. Oziel first entered the picture.
1: So he would have a long-standing relationship with Eric.
0: Yes, right up until the time of the murders. There was a disturbing incident involving the boys that took place in 1982 when Lyle was 15 and Eric was 12. Their cousin was staying with them for the summer. One night, they were just hanging out when all of a sudden the brothers grabbed their female cousin, tied her up, and ripped off her shirt. What? Yes. She screamed and the boys took off. On a second occasion that summer... While Lyle and his cousin were watching TV, he all of a sudden jumped on top of her and began touching her breasts. She was able to struggle free and nothing ever came of it. Ooh. Yeah, very disturbing. At the same age, Lyle got his first girlfriend. I'm not sure if these incidents were before or during his first love relationship. Lyle was said to be good to his girlfriend and respected her innocence. They fell for each other and would walk around Princeton Day School holding hands. This allegedly broke the rules, but the teachers felt sorry for the two teenagers because they were a little awkward, so it was said that they just looked the other way. Lyle would give his girlfriend expensive gifts and liked taking her to the movies. They stayed together until she left for college. She ended things and he was devastated. He had wanted to marry her. He did what he had seen his father do and tried to get her back by offering to buy her a fur coat, but it didn't work.
1: (laughs) I wonder if that's how Jose got Kitty to come back. After he had an affair with her.
0: I'm sure every time he did something he shouldn't, he probably lavished her with a gift. It was a pattern that Lyle had learned. Mm Mm-hmm. Throw money at it. Lyle knew that his father wanted him to go to an Ivy League school. He didn't want this. He wanted his father to back him financially in opening a restaurant. But this was not good enough for a son of Jose Menendez. Lyle's application to Princeton in 1986 was first denied because of his grades. They were just average. He had to take classes at a local community college and apply again the following year. This time he got in. It was believed it was more because of his ethnicity and the fact that he was Princeton Day School's top tennis player when he was there. Whatever works. During this time, Lyle had gotten a new girlfriend, and his parents thought she was a gold digger. So they sponsored her trip to Europe to play tennis, thinking this would get her out of their son's life. This backfired, and Lyle followed her to Europe.
1: Oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> now they just paid for a trip for their son and his girlfriend around Europe?
0: Right. Oh. It didn't last long. Lyle did end up going to Princeton. However, it seemed to be a, when the cat's away, the mouse will play, type of situation. Lyle was free from under his father's controlling thumb and decided to live it up rather than work on his studies. You can imagine going from a strict diet, exercise, and school routine to complete freedom. As a result, his grades suffered, and he was put on academic suspension for a time. Though probation must have only taught him that he had to get better grades, not that he had to work harder, because eventually Lyle was suspended altogether when he was caught plagiarizing, and Princeton was not willing to be paid off by Daddy.
1: Well, that's not really a big surprise. If his dad was having other people fill out his homework, even in elementary school, he would think that plagiarizing was okay and acceptable.
0: Exactly. Again, it's what he had been taught. Lyle would be suspended for a year, and instead of letting his son go to a less-than school, he made him come and work at live entertainment with him. Lyle was said to be horrified, seeing how his father treated his employees. But the employees were not fond of Lyle either. He would show up late, hardly did any work, and then would skip out early to go play tennis.
1: He hadn't got the work ethic lesson.
0: He hadn't. And to the other employees, you can just see the boss's son mentality. Mm-hmm. In 1988, Lyle was back at Princeton. When he got to campus, he threw a fit over being assigned a roommate. He threw the other guys' stuff out of their room and into the hall. Jose smoothed things over and got his son a single room. That just seemed like a toddler temper tantrum. Oh, it was. I'm not sharing a room. Get your stuff out of here. And when the guy wouldn't, Lyle threw it into the hall. Wow. And instead of Lyle getting in trouble, Jose smoothed it all over and...
1: He got his own room. He did. Why did they even take him back? That's a good question. They had to have been
0: paid off. I don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't put it past Jose. Same reason why they gave Lyle his own room. Hmm. Lyle met a guy through his girlfriend that he would become good friends with. They were such good friends that this guy would write Lyle's papers for him to keep him from failing.
1: Wait, he'd already got kicked out for plagiarizing.
0: Yep, but now it was his friend just doing his work for him.
1: That's still plagiarism.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Lyle would repay the favor by double crossing him later and helping to get him thrown out of school for theft accusations. No way. Yeah. Oh. Lyle appeared like a spoiled rich kid who could get away with murder.
1: Appeared like it. It sounds like that's exactly what he is. Mhm.
0: Eric on the other hand was comfortable living in his brother's shadow. He knew Lyle was the firstborn and was the one his father wanted to carry out his legacy. I wonder if he was relieved with that. Maybe. It would have taken some pressure off. But he was still expected to be the best at everything he did. Mm. Eric also got just average grades and was happy having his brother as his best friend. As I mentioned, he really excelled at tennis. The training was grueling, but I wonder if sports was an outlet of sorts for the brothers. It probably
1: became that way.
0: Kitty had a suspicion that her youngest son, Eric, was perhaps gay. Instead of accepting this about him, Kitty ordered Eric to get a girlfriend within the next six months. So he did. What? Yeah. It's all about image, remember, and this is the 80s. Oh. However, this relationship did not last long. While at a party, the teens got into a fight, resulting in Eric locking her inside a room. He left her there for a long time before finally letting her go. She later said that he was, quote, one of the oddest guys I've ever met. He's very arrogant, very confident, but deep down, he's got a lot of problems and insecurities. And just as a little side note, Eric was later interviewed and said he was not gay. Eric found a second girlfriend, and Kitty instantly loved her. She didn't think she was after their money like Lyle's girlfriend allegedly was. While at Calabasa High School, Eric became friends with a boy named Craig, Eric was the star player, and Craig was the captain of the tennis team. Together, Eric and Craig wrote a screenplay. They titled it Friends. This play was about a rich boy who murdered his family to inherit their millions, $147 million to be exact. The boy in the script eventually gets caught and dies. I'll share a paragraph he wrote about the boy named Hamilton in the play, as it seems like he is talking about himself. It reads, quote, My father was not a man to show his emotions. I know that he loved his family and his close friends very much. I can only hope that he loved me as much as he loved all of you. Sometimes he would tell me that I was not worthy to be his son. When he did that, it would make me strive harder to go further to prove to him that I was worthy, just so I could hear the words, I love you, son. Nothing I have ever done was good enough for this man, and I never heard those words, but I know he thought them. Mm, It does sound like that's a reflection for him. Oh, I think he was writing that from the heart. In the next scene, a friend puts his arm around this character and says to him, quote, We'll survive, buddy. Your father would have wanted you to. He knew what a great man you would become, even greater than he was. A warrior who has lost his parents is still a warrior. Understandably, many people believe this screenplay was major foreshadowing for what was to come. Ironically, Kitty helped her son type out the script. And she didn't make any connections to it? No. Jumping to summer of 1989, both sons, now adults, were not living up to their parents' expectations. Lyle's girlfriend had become pregnant, and it is alleged that Jose paid her off to go get an abortion, and Lyle was made to break it off with her for good. Despite his parents buying him a condo close to the school so he could spend more time studying, Lyle's grades came back from his semester at Princeton, and they were not good. He was facing not only academic probation, but disciplinary action as well after damaging pool tables at a party. He had also caused his family's privileges at the country club to be suspended for taking a nighttime joyride with a friend on a golf cart through the greens, causing damage along the way. No way. I'm sure that did not go over well with Daddy. Or Kitty, because Kitty was all about the country club. Oh no. Eric had started out the summer winning his tennis matches, but then was suddenly on a losing streak. He had also turned down an acceptance offer to attend Berkeley, an Ivy League school. He instead accepted his offer to attend UCLA. He wanted to go there instead because of its tennis team. That's not such a bad university, is it? No, but it wasn't Ivy League. And Jose had made the decision early on that his children would go to Ivy League schools. Oh, I thought his decision was that if his children wanted to,
1: he would be able to afford to provide that for him.
0: No, it was they are going to go. Okay. And he got in. So in Jose's eyes, his son was not making the decisions that he should. Why would you turn down Berkeley to go to UCLA? Right. Kitty and Jose were furious, and Jose threatened to have his will changed to exclude Lyle and Eric. Tensions were rising in the house, so much so that Kitty began locking her door at night. She told her therapist that she feared her sons were narcissistic, showed signs of being sociopaths, and lacked a conscience. It later came out that she also told her therapist that she was hiding, quote, sick and embarrassing secrets, which we will get to. About her boys? Just about the family. Okay. On August 19th, 1989, the family set out on a boat to go shark fishing. Staff later said that the family behaved distant from one another. Jose fished, The boys distanced themselves and stayed at the bow of the boat, and Kitty was seasick, so she stayed in the cabin for most of the trip. There is a picture of this day, and you wouldn't think they were anything but a happy family just by looking at it. They
1: snapped the picture and then all went their separate ways.
0: Yep. The next day, August 20th, would be the millionaire couple's last day, and they would know in their final moments that it was their own flesh and blood who would take their lives. It was evening, and Jose and Kitty were settling in for the night. Kitty had changed into her sweats, and they had just dished themselves out bowls of ice cream with strawberries on top to relax on the couch and watch TV in the den before turning in for the night. Okay, this sounds like the perfect evening. (laughs) Sweats, ice cream, movie? Uh, That's what I thought. (laughs) They had put a James Bond movie in the VHS player. Their boys had said they were going to go see a movie together, and the housekeeper had the evening off, so they thought they had the night to themselves. This sounds perfect. It does. And they were just so unsuspecting. The brothers entered the home through the French doors in the study around 10 o'clock p.m. with 12 gauge shotguns in hand. They walked down the hallway to where they knew their parents would be. At this time, Jose had dozed off sitting upright on the couch and Kitty was laying on the couch snuggled under a blanket with her head on her husband's lap. The boys walked into the room and immediately started firing at their parents. Jose was first struck in his left elbow, followed by his right arm. Lyle walked up behind his father, placed the end of his shotgun at the back of his head, and fired. The shot ended his life. Police would later find him in this exact spot. His feet were still on the ground, his hands were across his abdomen, and he had slumped a little towards the right. Kitty sat up when this was happening. She was covered in her husband's blood and tissue. Kitty attempted to try to get up and get away. Her son shot her in her right calf and arm. She fell between the couch and the coffee table. When she tried to get back up, she slipped in her own blood. She got up long enough for the blood to drip down her leg. She was shot again and fell to the ground. Unable to escape, Lyle and Eric opened fire on her. She was hit close range in the thigh. They were so close to her that the force from the paper wadding that contained the pellets broke her bone. She was shot in the arm again, as well as in the left breast. This shot perforated her left lung, filling her chest cavity with blood. Kitty was a fighter. She was not yet dead. She tried to crawl away, but couldn't. The boys were out of ammunition. They left their mother on the den floor beside her murdered husband and went to the vehicle to reload their shotguns. This time they loaded their guns with birdshot. Originally, they had used ball-bearing-sized pellets. When they re-entered, they leaned over the coffee table, pressed their gun up against her left cheek, and fired. Kitty and Jose Menendez had been massacred. In a final act of violence towards their parents, the Menendez brothers shot out their parents' kneecaps, hoping this would cause the police to believe that the double homicide could have been carried out as a mob hit.
1: Why were they so violent towards their mother? I would have thought they would have taken anger out more towards their father.
0: I am actually going to go into that, but we're not quite there yet.
1: Okay, but there is a reason, like it was purposeful that they were so much more violent towards her.
0: Not so much more violent, but there is an explanation as to why. Okay. There is more to the story. At the beginning, Eric was supposed to shoot his mom, and Lyle was supposed to shoot their dad, and Eric couldn't at first. And so they took care of Jose first, and then Kitty didn't die right away. So it took a lot more shots to her to kill her. It just seemed so violent towards her. It really was. But they do have their reasonings for killing her as well. I'm now going to go into a little more detail about the injuries from the autopsies. Jose's initial shots did not kill him. He was still breathing until he was shot in the head. These shots included two shots to his right arm, a shot in his left elbow, his right forearm, one below his shoulder that fractured his humerus, and the shot to his kneecap after he was dead created a three inch wound. Dr. Golden, who conducted the autopsy, said about Jose's head wound that it was a quote unquote gaping laceration that was big enough to fit an adult fist through. It was four by five inches in size. His face was deformed, the brain was mutilated, and many bones in his face and jaw had been fractured. There was soot on the back of his head, indicating that the gun had been pressed up against his head when it was fired. Kitty sustained even more shots than her husband, a total of 10. I believe Jose had six. The shot to her left side of her face left a one-inch hole in her cheek. This shot fractured her upper jaw and dislodged four of her top teeth. Her lower jaw was also fractured, as well as her skull her tongue had even had a pellet wound in it. She sustained three shots in total to her head, injuring her brain. The shot to her right cheek resulted in a four-inch tear from her right cheek across her nose to her left cheek. Kitty's thumb had been almost completely shot off. This suggested that she lifted her hand to her face to try and defend herself. The other injuries were, as I described, to her right forearm, left breast, and three in her left leg. Kitty's left kneecap had been taken out but it was noted that the shot had entered at a different angle, supporting the theory later that it was done afterwards to make her death look like a mob killing. Kitty was age 47 at the time of her death, and Jose was 45. That's just so brutal. Very vicious.
1: That's a lot of anger. It's no wonder that this one was all over the news.
0: Oh, for sure. People were shocked and horrified. When finished gunning down their parents, Lyle and Eric collected all of the shell casings from the bloody scene. I assume they cleaned themselves up and then they left the home to purchase movie tickets to support their alibi. Apparently, they had made plans to see License to Kill and then were supposed to meet a friend at the Taste of LA Food Festival. Obviously, they never showed up to meet the friend at the festival. When the brothers got to the theater, License to Kill was sold out, so they purchased tickets to the new Batman movie. They returned home to their mansion and placed a 911 call to the police at 11:47 p.m. In this call, you can listen to a recording of it. Lyle is crying in hysterics. He tells the dispatcher, quote, they shot and killed my parents. You can hear Eric screaming in the background and Lyle hollers to him to shut up and to, quote, get away from them. The call lasted two and a half minutes and almost immediately police arrived to the scene. So they must have been close by. Or they respond pastor to rich people. <laughs> they said it was like a minute, like it did not take long. When the officers pulled up, they first began checking the perimeter of the mansion. Lyle and Eric ran out of the house screaming. They ran past the officers, through the gate, and onto the street. They fell to their knees yelling about how they couldn't believe it. To which I say, you better believe it because you just did it. Eric was especially acting distraught, so much so that he began hitting his head against a tree. Lyle had to comfort him. This was a common dynamic. Eric was more reserved than his older brother and looked up to him. It did not take long for police to realize that this attack was not random. There was no forced entry into the home and nothing seemed to be stolen. The only room in disarray was the den. Lyle and Eric were taken to the police station to answer questions. However, the interview only lasted about 20 minutes because Eric was still so upset. He was crying uncontrollably and could hardly sit still. Lyle answered most of the questions and tried to comfort his brother. Lyle told police about his mother's nervousness over the last while and how she, quote, was very edgy and suicidal in the last few years. When asked who could possibly want to hurt their parents, Lyle suggested that it could have been the mob. It was said, though, that Jose did actually have ties to the mob, so this wasn't completely far-fetched. That's how he was so successful. <laughs> Told you there was criminal activity? <laughs> None that we know of. Police had no idea that they were looking into the faces of the dirtbags who had killed Jose and Kitty. The thought of the sons being responsible was so far from their minds that they didn't even test them for gunshot residue. Oops. Yep. At first, the idea of a business deal gone wrong or even a mob hit seemed plausible. Jose had bad blood with more than just a few people. There was a porn executive in particular who had beef with Jose.
1: It would be believable that there was a disgruntled employee out there with how he treated people.
0: For sure. And this was probably a bad deal gone wrong or something happened with this porn executive. I didn't find any details.
1: You didn't dig deep on that one, Christy? I did
0: not. I do not want my computer to get a virus.
1: (laughs) Now I have to look it up.
0: (laughs) You get one on yours. That's just fine.
1: I'm good. I'll go to the local library.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just make sure to exit out before a kid comes and uses the computer. (laughs) They probably have stuff like that blocked.
1: (laughs) Oh, I imagine they would. Mm -hmm. What kind of creep would be looking at porn on a public library computer? Oh, there's probably some. You think
0: so? Yes. There's dirt pigs everywhere. It's true. Because of this large suspect pool, police would not immediately look at Lyle and Eric. And quite honestly, I'm not sure that they ever would have solved it without the misstep of the killers themselves.
1: It would just be so far from what you think would naturally happen.
0: Right. And not that I don't think the police were capable, but there just wasn't really the physical evidence to point towards them. It's surprising that they cleaned up that well after themselves. Mm-hmm. Again, which I think speaks to premeditation. hmm The brothers definitely came across as distraught when they called the police and immediately after their parents' deaths. Everyone grieves differently, and perhaps the boys powered through the way that they knew how, with good old retail therapy. Or maybe their actions just speaks to how cold-hearted they were. This aspect of the case solidifies many people's views on the case. What the boys did next portrays them as total dirtbags who had zero remorse for their actions. Together, the brothers went on a $700,000 shopping spree within oh, just a few short months. That is a lot. Well, it's even more than you think, because today that is over $1.7 US dollars and well over $2.3 Canadian. That is quite the shopping spree. <laughs> it is. It is speculated that they would have spent more, but that is just what was liquid enough to get their hands on at the time. The estate proceedings hadn't been done yet.
1: Right, but then they had been taught their whole life that you throw money at a problem, and I bet
0: you they weren't feeling great about themselves. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what they were feeling. Lyle, after shooting his father in the back of his head, spent daddy's money on Rolex watches, money clips, stereo equipment, and a brand new Porsche. Apparently, Lyle had asked his dad for a Porsche for his 16th birthday, but Jose had said no. So I wonder if buying this Porsche was just to take a jab at Jose even after his death. He apparently was not happy with the Elf of Romeo that they did give him at 16.
1: (laughs) I can totally see
0: that. Lyle also put down a payment for a restaurant for $300,000. Oh yeah, those were all jabs at his dad. Exactly. Now that you're gone, I'm going to do what I want. And you're not going to stop me. To keep up the facade that the mob had killed his parents, Lyle also hired bodyguards for the first several weeks after the supposed hit. Do the bodyguards later testify to their behavior after their parents died? No, it was very public, their behavior. Oh. Eric also had fun purchasing lavish items. Among the money he spent, he hired a coach for $50,000 to help him further along his tennis career, traveled out of the country, and spent $40,000 to fund an LA rock concert. That didn't end up happening because the friend he gave the money to allegedly bounced with the cash.
1: Oh, no! Yes.
0: He also bought himself a Jeep Wrangler. Even though they both had new vehicles, they were seen driving their mother's Mercedes. They also left the murder mansion empty and rented adjoining condos in Marina del Rey, where they would host extravagant parties. From the outside looking in, they appeared to be having a great time with newfound freedom and access to their family's wealth. And this next part is kind of wild. This living it up era will be forever immortalized in the most unusual way. The two brothers got themselves courtside tickets to a New York Knicks basketball game, During the game, an action shot was taken of player Mark Jackson. This photo was used for his trading card. When you look at the card, you can clearly see Lyle and Eric sitting in their seats, not too far away from him.
1: Sitting courtside. Yes,
0: right up there. At the time, no one knew what the boys had done, but it is such a random thing to realize after the fact. And I know they were technically men at this point, but I'm still calling them boys. Eric was only 18. I just found that really bizarre. Yeah, that is
1: something really
0: weird. That poor player, too. He's got to killers <laughs> two trading card. And surprisingly, it's not going for a lot of money. I looked online. <laughs> Could you get it, Christy? <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> a used one anyways is pretty inexpensive. <laughs> Most of this spending began right after the funeral, but some of it even prior. The boys attended the funeral, decked out to the nines, showing off their Rolexes. I think Lyle bought three and Eric purchased one. Family members would later try to defend the brothers by saying that this was just their spending habits and that it hadn't changed from before the killings to afterwards. Considering Jose had said no to the Porsche, I am not sure how accurate that claim is. They were used to living in luxury, but I don't believe Jose would have allowed them to burn through $1.7 million of his money within six short months.
1: They probably didn't have a concept of what a dollar was worth. So it probably didn't seem like a big deal to them that they were spending this amount of money.
0: Yes, where we all know that $1.7 U.S. million is a lot of money Yeah, to just go through in six months. On top of the family's estate, the boys also stood to collect an insurance policy taken out by the company that Jose worked for. Apparently, it can be a common thing for big companies to take out life insurance policies on their top executives. This helps ensure the company stays afloat until they find a replacement. Live Entertainment had taken out a $15 million policy on Jose for themselves, but also included a key man personal policy for Jose's family valued at $5 million. Kitty would have been the recipient of this policy, but since she was murdered as well, it would have gone to their sons. Oh, look, they've got another six months worth of spending. (laughs) The estate was valued at $14 million. That, with the extra $5 million from the company policy, would have totaled closer to $47 million U.S. dollars today and almost $64 Canadian. Wow. Split in half to share with your brother, that is still an incredible amount of money. You would be set for life. You would. Five days after the double homicide, on August 25th, there was what was described as an elaborate memorial service held for Kitty and Jose. As I mentioned, the boys showed up in style, but they showed up an hour late for the service. No, they didn't. They did. It was said that Eric looked like he had been crying, and Lyle appeared more calm.
1: I know at some funerals it does happen that
0: people just can't bring themselves to go in. Right. And that could have been. Yeah. And they said that Eric was super upset, so I don't know if Lyle had to convince him to come, but it just didn't look good.
1: Right. It doesn't sit well because you know what happened in hindsight.
0: A second service took place a few days later on August 28th. This one was more traditional. During the service, Lyle spoke for 30 minutes about how much his parents meant to him. Eric was said to be too upset to talk much. The brothers only waited a week to go and see live entertainment about their father's policy. However, they were told it wasn't valid because Jose hadn't completed the physical examination. That being said, the company did collect their $15 million. Detectives Les Solar and Tim Lynham were assigned the case. They started with talking to people who knew the Menendez family. It did not take long to learn that a lot of people in the business world were not that fond of Jose. To their surprise, when they interviewed a couple who were friends with Kitty and Jose, the husband said, quote, I have no basis for this, but I wonder if the boys did it. The couple explained that the boys seemed too good to be true. They said that Lyle and Eric were too polite, too deferential, and something just seemed off. When the police began to take notice of the brothers' spending, starting just four days after their parents' death, they did become suspicious. Police learned that on August 31st, less than two weeks after the murders, the boys had hired a computer expert to erase all files on Kitty's computer. A friend of Lyle's would later say that the boys erased Kitty's computer because Jose had gone through with his threat and was writing up a new will. Jose had his first will written in 1980, before he became super wealthy. This will stated that if both he and Kitty died together, their entire estate would be split amongst their sons. It is believed that Jose was amending or rewriting his will to give less to his sons or write them out altogether. The computer was wiped clean, and technology just wasn't there yet to retrieve it in 1989. On October 24th, Detective Zoller had Eric meet him at the Beverly Hills mansion to answer some questions. Lyle exhibited a greater confidence than his little brother did. He was ready to take over the family affairs. So I believe this decision to question Eric without his brother was methodical going after the weakest link, if you will. Oh, it definitely sounds that way. Uh Uh-huh. It was smart. Eric disclosed to the detective that he wasn't getting along with his brother. He said that Lyle was acting just like their father, and he felt like he was maybe trying to manipulate him out of his share of the inheritance. He also said he was concerned with how fast Lyle was spending their money. He was definitely spending more than Eric.
1: But is Eric purposely trying to throw his brother underneath the bus?
0: No, I think he just was opening up. Okay. During the interview, Eric held his composure. Afterwards, he began to spiral. He tried to call his brother but couldn't get a hold of him. This secret was eating him up inside and he needed someone to talk to.
1: The therapist.
0: Yes. Having nowhere else to turn, Eric called his therapist, Dr. Ozeal, the same therapist that I mentioned earlier. Dr. Ozeal booked Eric in for an appointment on Halloween Day. On October 31st, the two met up they spent the session talking while walking around Beverly Hills. Eric told the doctor that he was depressed and feeling like taking his own life. As they made their way closer to the doctor's office, Eric stopped walking. He leaned up against a parking meter and just blurted out, quote, we did it. We killed our parents. Eric told Dr. Oziel about a 1987 miniseries that he and Lyle had watched together titled Billionaire Boys Club. It was based on a true story about a man being murdered for his money and a group of young businessmen being pulled into a Ponzi scheme. At least I think the description was not the greatest and I didn't watch it. Regardless, watching the miniseries sparked discussion between the two brothers about how they both believed their dad was going to write them out of his will and how hard their lives would be without money and how terrible their lives were now because of their domineering father. It was after this conversation that they decided to kill Jose. According to Eric at this time, Kitty would have to be collateral damage. We didn't want her to be able to turn us in. So he's opening up to his therapist, but he's still not telling the whole truth? Right. Okay. Eric explained that he and his brother had traveled to San Diego days earlier to purchase the shotguns. He said that they didn't need to worry about fingerprints since they planned the crime to take place at home. He continued to explain that they picked up all the shell casings and then left the house to get the movie tickets. They threw the guns in a nearby canyon on Mulholland Drive. They waited until no cars were around to see them. They then went to a gas station and threw their bloody clothes, shoes, and the shell casings away in a dumpster. They were supposed to then meet a friend at the Cheesecake Factory, but Eric was too upset, so they just went back home. They thought they had committed the perfect crime, and they were fully expecting to see police at their home when they returned. They had fired multiple rounds in Beverly Hills. And they were sure that someone would have notified the police. And just a little side note, neighbors later reported hearing the gunshots, but no one had called 911. Because that was just a normal occurrence? (laughs) No, it was not in Beverly Hills, so it was shocking that nobody did. Yeah, that is weird. Maybe that whole diffusion of responsibility thing, someone else will call. Maybe. Or you're just thinking, oh, it couldn't have been a gunshot. Right, because that doesn't (laughs) happen in our neighborhood. That's right. Could have been. It's amazing what we can talk ourselves into or out of. That is true. Dr. Ozil told Eric that he better call his brother and get him to come to the office to where they were now talking. When Lyle arrived, he was beyond furious. He could not believe that Eric had told someone what they had done. Lyle told the doctor that he and his brother were sociopaths and that they would basically have no trouble killing him if he told anyone what they had done. He threatened the doctor? He did. Well, he was probably freaking out.
1: Yeah, this wasn't part of the plan. No.
0: The brothers met with the doctor again a couple of days later, on November 2nd. Again, Lyle threatened his life if he broke their patient doctor confidentiality.
1: Oh, that doesn't apply when you kill somebody.
0: Well, actually it does. What? But technically, the doctor could have turned the two men in right away because they threatened his safety. However, he didn't. But otherwise, he wouldn't have had to turn them in. At least at the time. That is interesting. I thought as soon as you harm somebody else. If he knew they were making plans to harm somebody, they would have to. But if they had already harmed someone, he is obligated to treat them, to help them. That is really interesting. I thought so too. So he did have the right to be able to break that confidentiality and turn them in. However, he didn't. Instead, he took notes and secretly recorded their sessions. He even had his mistress stand outside of the door to listen in while he spoke with the brothers. His mistress, not his receptionist? Yeah, his mistress. Because what he was doing was not on the up and up. Mm. Some would argue that Dr. O'Ziel was trying to gather proof before going to the police, but others think he was obtaining enough evidence to later blackmail his young millionaire patients. Yeah,
1: that seems more like it.
0: Yeah, and we will come back to this when we discuss the trial. Meanwhile, the detectives were still searching for answers. They interviewed Eric's good friend, Craig. Craig was honest with the police and told them that Eric did confess to him about murdering his parents when Craig went to visit him at the mansion shortly after the killings took place. Wait, I thought that's why he had went to his therapist was because he just had to tell somebody, but he had already told somebody? Yes, he had told his friend Craig. Okay. And I don't know, maybe he had tried to call Craig and he wasn't available either? but he had been freaked out about the detective talking to him and that's when he needed to reach out. He spoke to Craig soon after the murders. So some time had passed. As I mentioned, Eric said that the plan was for Lyle to shoot their dad and Eric was supposed to shoot their mom. After Lyle shot Jose, Eric couldn't bring himself to shoot Kitty. Lyle shot her in the leg and Eric did end up shooting her as well afterwards. Craig said that the story Eric told him quote-unquote could have happened The two friends were known for messing with each other, so he wasn't sure if he should believe him or not. Which explains why he didn't go to the police. Right. This information was incriminating, but not enough to make an arrest. The detectives asked Craig if he would meet up with Eric again and try to get him to confess while wearing a wire. Craig agreed. Later that same month, on November 29th, Eric met up with his friend Craig for dinner. Craig was wearing the wire but when he brought up the subject to his friend, Eric denied having anything to do with his parents' murder. My guess is he was shaken after Lyle came down so hard on him when he told his therapist. They were likely starting to get nervous at this point. Police kept searching for evidence, but were coming up empty. That is, until they got a massive break in the case. On March 5th, now 1990, Dr. Oziel's mistress, a woman named Judalon Smith, walked into the police station and told them what she knew about the Menendez murders. Unlike her boyfriend, she could no longer handle knowing this information and not doing anything about it.
1: She did the right thing.
0: Yeah, finally someone in this case did. Judalon owned an audio duplicating business, and she had been eavesdropping on the brothers' continued sessions with the doctor. She had heard what they did, and she had heard Lyle threaten her boyfriend's life if he told. I wanted to point out that Dr. Ozil had been seeing the Menendez brothers for four full months at this point. He said he was trying to help them figure out what happened in their family history to make them murder their parents. This is my question. If he was within his rights to turn them in, why hadn't he? The inheritance hadn't quite come through yet, so this makes me feel like his motives might not have been pure ones. I wonder if he was just collecting as much evidence as he could until the money was in their bloody hands and he could get his cut. I'm not accusing. It just doesn't sit right with me what he was doing.
1: You'd think by four months, though, he would have enough information to blackmail them, too.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think he was just biding time till the inheritance came through. Mm. Recording them without their knowledge and having his mistress listen was not the most ethical behavior for a therapist. No, not at all. Which makes me feel like he wasn't really trying to help them either. It's not on the up and up. No, and how much did he actually fear his life if he wasn't going to the police for help? Right. Police acted quickly, and three days later on March 8th, they obtained a search warrant for the doctor's tapes of their sessions. Dr. Ozdiel had 17 tapes in total, as well as seven pages of notes that he turned over to the detectives. They finally had the evidence they needed to make arrests. Just after 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Lyle was headed out with friends to go to the Cheesecake Factory. They piled into Eric's Jeep and started down the road, where many police were waiting for him. Apparently, Jose's aging mother was now living at the mansion and they didn't want to upset her by storming the place and arresting her grandson in front of her. That was very sweet of them. I thought it was very considerate. All the men were ordered to exit the Jeep. Lyle was handcuffed and they were all taken to the West Hollywood Sheriff's Station. After Lyle's booking, he was taken downtown to the Los Angeles County Men's Jail. The brothers were not arrested together because at the time, Eric was actually in Israel playing in a tennis tournament. And I have to ask, if you were Eric, would you have taken this opportunity to flee after hearing about your brother's arrest?
1: Well, did he hear about it?
0: He did. And I thought if I was a big enough dirtbag to murder someone, I would think this would be an easy choice. However, as you may have noticed, Eric did have a conscience. When Eric heard the news, he called his uncle Carlos, who told him that he should come home and turn himself in. I believe it was this uncle who said about Eric, quote, Eric would follow Lyle to hell, even if it meant leaving heaven to do so. Oh. And he was right. Eric got on a plane and headed back to America.
1: So was it all Lyle's plan to begin with? Or had they come up with it together?
0: They had come up with it together, but I think Lyle was the driving force. I don't think Eric would have done it without his brother. He was the ringleader. Yeah. He flew to his aunt's house in Miami. This aunt notified the police and flew with her nephew to LA, where the detectives were waiting for them. Eric was arrested and taken to the same jail as his brother. Having the money to do it, the Menendez brothers hired a very expensive star lawyer, Leslie Abramson. She was described as being so fierce that she even intimidated the judges. (laughs) The brothers' arraignment was on March 26th. Their judge for this was Judith Stein. The courtroom was filled with support for the brothers. Many of their family members did not believe that the boys were responsible. It was said that the boys acted cocky. They had smirks on their faces, they waved to their family and friends, and acted like they had zero worries that their lawyer would not get them out of this. They were focusing more on their girlfriends in the courtroom than they were about the matter before them. Well, but Daddy had already showed them that he could get them out of all their previous charges. Right, they really hadn't been held responsible for anything. But now Daddy's not here because they killed him. Exactly. When the judge asked them to stand, it was said that they held back from laughing. What? Apparently, Judge Stein was a super tiny lady and had these giant glasses And so they said they found it funny when she began to talk to them and was like, please stand. And then they burst out laughing. It just was funny to them. Total dirtbags. You know, when you're laughing at something that you shouldn't, that's kind of what it was. Yeah. Judge Stein explained their charges and told them that if convicted of first degree murder charges with special circumstances, they would face the death penalty. The special circumstances used was that they committed a multiple murder and they were laying in wait. A third special circumstance was that they had killed their parents for financial gain, but that one was ultimately dismissed. The boys were scheduled to be tried at the same time, but with separate juries. Jill Lansing was hired to defend Lyle, and both lawyers hired more attorneys to help with the trial. The first order of business was to decide if ethically, the recorded audio tapes could be used in court. Normally, if a patient tells a doctor that they've murdered someone, that doctor is confined to doctor-patient privileges and would not be admitted to turn the patient in. In this case, however, as I said, Lyle had threatened the doctor's life, which should have given him cause to break that confidentiality. I won't go into the entire ordeal, but these tapes being used in court caused much back and forth between the prosecution and the defense, not to mention much public debate. Ultimately, after initial rulings and overturns, Only one of the tapes was allowed to be used in court. It was said that Dr. Ozeal had not acted like a psychotherapist in those sessions, so it was okay to use them, and that the tape supported the idea that he had been threatened. It did not have all the juicy details on it like some of the other tapes. So they chose the least harmful one. Right, that just kind of proved that he was maybe in danger. Even so, quotes from some of these tapes had been released to the press, and it was at this time that many of the family members who initially supported the boys pulled away. They jump ship. Right. Lyle and Eric remained in jail for three years, waiting their trial. They were isolated from the other prisoners. They were in different cells, but both in the 7,000 block of the Los Angeles County Men's Jail. Dirtbag Richard Ramirez and OJ Simpson had been held in this area. Lyle continued to be headstrong, but kind of deluded in his way of thinking to be honest, It was said that he told Eric he wouldn't let their parents down again and that their deaths wouldn't be in vain. It sounded like he believed that he would get out and be even more successful than his father was and that his father would be proud of him. Seems so deluded. Right? I don't think daddy's very proud that you shot him in the back of the head. Eric, on the other hand, was not doing as well. He became depressed and suicidal. He began seeing a psychiatrist, trained from Harvard, Dr. William Vickery. He was also given Xanax to help him cope. Eric was described as a model prisoner, and Lyle was portrayed as the opposite. I do want to say, though, that after watching videos of the two brothers, Eric creeps me out even more. Judge Stanley Weisberg was their trial judge. It was him who had decided to try them at the same time. He said that the evidence and witness testimonies would be the same for both cases, so it would be more efficient and cost the state way less money to try them simultaneously. The trials began on July twentieth, 1993. We honestly could record another episode or two just on the trials, but I will do my best to give you as much detail as I can in a condensed version. The lengthy proceedings were publicly televised. Never before have I wished that I could spend four literal months doing nothing but watch this trial. I was enthralled with the parts I was able to watch, and this is why. The prosecution would argue that the Menendez brothers were simply money-hungry, spoiled little rich brats who wanted their inheritance sooner than later, that the boys were monsters capable of ruthlessly killing their parents for monetary gain. The defense shook everyone when they dropped the bomb that the real reason that Lyle and Eric had murdered their parents was because of the years and years of abuse at the hands of their father. They claimed that Jose had abused them emotionally, physically, and sexually. They also claimed that Kitty knew what was happening to her sons in their home and did nothing to stop it. In one quick swoop, the Menendez family's entire reputation was destroyed. But was it true? That's the question. As I read about and watched segments of the trial, I found myself going back and forth between both of these positions. The prosecution would argue that if this was the real reason that they did what they did, why didn't they tell Dr. Oziel about the abuse? In actuality, experts believe that a victim can sometimes feel so much guilt and shame over being abused, especially sexually, that it would be even harder to speak about that than committing murder. The defense played up the idea of boyhood victims and had the brothers dress in colorful sweater vests to appear more innocent, despite the fact that Lyle was now 25 and Eric was 22. By now, the boys had also changed their tune to a more somber one. Did the boys testify at trial that they had been sexually abused? They do. at length. Some of the Menendez family still supported the brothers, including Jose's mother. It was reported that Kitty's family did not attend the trials. In her opening statement, Jill Lansing said that the purpose of this trial was not to prove that the Menendez brothers killed their parents. They did. What the trial was, was to prove why. She claimed that the boys killed their mom and dad out of fear of their parents. In court, it came out that Jose had sexually molested his oldest son Lyle from the ages of six to eight, but Lyle never told anyone. A few days before the murder, Eric went to his older brother and finally confided in him that their father had been molesting and raping him for 12 years, so from about the age of six on. Lyle saw red and confronted their father. Jose was still assaulting Eric, and Lyle told Jose that, quote, the abuse was going to stop. Lyle said he was going to take Eric out of the house. Jose allegedly responded that he could do whatever he wanted with his sons and that no one would threaten him. Lyle said Jose said to him, quote, What I do with my son is none of your business. I warn you, don't throw your life away. The defense laid out the idea that Jose had threatened his sons, saying that this family secret would not be allowed out and he would stop anyone who tried. The sons took this as meaning that their father would kill them before he would let them tell. It was said that at first the boys hadn't even told their defense teams about the abuse. A female cousin came forward and said that in 1976, when Lyle was 8 years old, he confided in her that his dad was sexually abusing him. The cousin told Kitty what was happening to her son. Kitty told this cousin that Lyle was lying, and that was the end of that. Interestingly, if I did my math right, this could have been when Jose stopped assaulting Lyle and turned his sights onto his youngest son, Eric. Other family members also came forward to testify that Jose was abusive and abrasive with his sons. Both Lyle and Eric took the stand. Lyle's testimony lasted nine days. Lyle testified that his dad started out by showing him and his brother pornography involving men and explained to them at the ages of three and six that men used to bond this way as soldiers in ancient Greece. Lyle continued to say that his father would come and give him massages after sport practices and games. These massages turned into Lyle having to perform oral sex on his dad. By the age of seven, Jose was sodomizing him. Lyle said he told his mom what was happening and that she told him to stop exaggerating. She said that dad had to punish him when he did things wrong. He admitted that the abuse stopped at age eight, but that Jose had threatened his life if he told anyone. He also said that he had been sexually molested by his mother when he was 12. He said he found comfort in his stuffed animals, and that is why he still had them as a teenager. Lyle explained that after he confronted his father as an adult, he felt like Jose would kill him to keep his mouth shut. He said that his mother was angry with him. According to Lyle, Kitty told him that everything would have worked out in their family if he had just kept his mouth shut. She
1: blamed him. Mm -hmm.
0: Jose had also told Eric that he was not allowed to go with his brother because he and Kitty had to keep a close eye on his homework. The brothers took this to mean that the sexual abuse was going to continue. Family members did testify that when Jose and Eric were in a closed room together, no one was allowed to disturb them, supporting the idea that Jose would take sex from his son whenever he pleased. The prosecution played the 911 call made by Lyle on the night of the double homicide and told the jury members that the call proved just what great actors the boys were. Dr. Ozeal was one of the prosecution's witnesses. His motives for recording the sessions were questioned. During the trial, he ended up surrendering his license for sleeping with two of his patients, but was still allowed to testify. He'd still had a conversation with them, even though he's a dirtbag. I just thought it was interesting that he surrendered his license because all the dirt was coming on on him. (laughs) He already had a mistress and then had slept with two patients. (laughs) That's why I just don't believe that his motives were pure. The defense was limited to calling 50 witnesses. Originally, they wanted to call 90. To prove that the brothers believed that they were in imminent danger, the defense had to try and prove that they feared for their lives and that their parents' behavior would have justified that fear. They compared it to being the same as battered wife syndrome. Eric began his testimony on September 27th. It was said that he appeared much more mentally unstable than his brother, and the prosecution used this to their advantage, treating him at times as a hostile witness. But wouldn't that just confirm that he had been abused longer? I would think so. Eric also went into great detail about his abuse. The prosecution tried to accuse him of being gay, but the judge did not allow it. Because why would that have anything to do with it anyways? It shouldn't. I don't even know why it kept being brought up. And that's Ugh. why Barbara Walters asked him, like, are you gay? And he's like, no, I'm not. Huh. I think they were trying to make it sound like, oh, if you're gay, maybe you were enjoying it, which is horrible. That is awful. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. No. Even if he was gay. No one is going to be enjoying that. No. Because the brothers were claiming that they killed out of fear, the judge ended up allowing the tape from December 11th to also be played. In this tape, they said that they killed their parents because of what bad parents and how controlling they were. Jose's secretary testified that at the funeral, she told Lyle to not try to fill his father's shoes, to make his own way in life. She said that he stuck out his foot and motioned to the shoes he was wearing and said, quote, You don't understand. These are my father's shoes. Hmm. The psychologist that Eric saw while incarcerated did testify that Eric had discussed with him the sexual abuse. There were also naked pictures that Jose had taken of his boys when they were children brought into evidence. And these aren't your let's have fun, we're playing in the bathtub kind of photos. It was just naked photos. They were unnerving. So can you see how my brain kept going back and forth between both the defense and the prosecution's arguments? I can see both sides. I honestly feel like they were abused, but I don't know if they murdered their parents because they believed they were in imminent danger. I could go on about this trial, but in the end, the judge told the juries they had four options one, find them guilty of first degree murder with special circumstances, two, find them guilty of second degree murder, three, guilty of voluntary manslaughter, and four, guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Their charges were for the murders of Jose and Kitty, as well as a third charge of conspiracy to commit murder. Eric's jurors deliberated for 16 days. On January 13, 1994, they announced that they were deadlocked. Lyle's jurors deliberated for 24 days. On January 25th, they also announced that they were deadlocked. This meant that both Eric and Lyle's cases were deemed mistrials. And they had to do it all again. All over. The jurors could not decide if the brothers were cold-hearted killers or victims of abuse. But you can be both. Absolutely both the judge scheduled another trial. This time, the brothers would be tried together, but with one jury, and it would not be televised. The trial began in August of 1995, six years after Kitty and Jose's deaths. This time, for whatever reason, the judge did not allow the allegations of abuse to be used as part of the defense. Why not? I don't know. That's why I said for whatever reason, because I do not know. It's bizarre to me that it was not allowed. It would be interesting to read why he didn't feel that was pertinent. I don't believe he felt there was any proof of it. Okay. They had proved that they were good actors and their behavior afterwards left such a poor taste in everyone's mouth that it made them appear to be more so just cold-blooded killers trying to get as much money as they could. But how do you present
1: one side of a characterization but not the other? I know. It shouldn't have happened. But it did. It's interesting. Not that I'm justifying what they did.
0: No. But...
1: That's an interesting decision for a judge to make.
0: It was. And he stood by it. We don't have time to go through all the particulars of this trial. I will point out, though, that this time Lyle did not testify, and the imperfect self-defense theory was not allowed. The jury began deliberations on March 1st, but two female jurors had to be excused. One had a heart attack, and the other went into labor. Alternates were put in, and deliberations resumed on March 20th. The jurors deliberated for four days and came back with guilty verdicts on two counts of first-degree murder as well as conspiracy to commit murder. They also decided that the special circumstances did apply. On July 2nd, 1996, Judge Weisberg sentenced both brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole. They were given two life sentences, one for each parent to be served consecutively. That's not a big shocker, since they didn't really allow any defense. Right how could they have come up with any other decision? The brothers pleaded to be able to serve out their sentences together. They were sent together to North Kern State Prison at Delano to be evaluated before a decision was made regarding if they could serve their time together. On September 10th, it was decided that they should be housed separately. In fact, since they were classified as maximum security inmates, they were to be segregated from other prisoners as well. The brothers remained in separate prisons until February of 2018 when Lyle was transferred from Mule Creek State Prison in Northern California to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County. At first, they were kept separated, but by April of that same year, Lyle was moved to the same unit as his brother Eric. It was said to be an extremely emotional reunion. Both men got married while incarcerated. Lyle got married twice after his first marriage didn't work out. That <laughs> no, <four> always me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. They have both filed multiple appeals, each being rejected until all appeals were exhausted. They were interviewed by Barbara Walters, and as you can imagine, their case has inspired a great deal of media production. However, I told you at the beginning that there have been new discoveries regarding this case. There was a letter written by Eric sent to his cousin Andy in December of 1988, well before the murders. In this letter, he talks about the sexual abuse at the hands of his father. Part of the letter reads, quote, I've been trying to avoid Dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy. He warned me about a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I a serious wimpus? I don't know I'll make it through this. I can handle it, Andy. I'd need to stop thinking about it. The letter was found by Jose's sister, Andy's mother. Eric sent it to his cousin just eight months before the murders. Unfortunately, this cousin died in 2003 from an accidental overdose of sleeping pills. His mother thinks that he held on to the secret and it ate him up inside. He became traumatized after his cousins went to jail. That is just so sad. It is, and I don't know why he didn't come forward. But that is not all. More evidence than this has just recently surfaced. A man named Roy Rosello has recently come forward and said that he was raped by Jose Menendez when he was just 14 years old. Roy was a member of the Latin boy band that Jose had signed with RCA Records. He has given a sworn declaration that Jose raped him anally twice and was orally copulated by him a habeas petition has been filed. The second trial that found the brothers guilty excluded the sexual abuse allegations at the hands of Jose. This new evidence supports Jose being a sexual predator. I believe the brothers are pleading for a retrial. I have not heard any news on this yet, but we will keep you posted. It's still pretty recent. At this point, the Menendez brothers have been incarcerated for 33 years. Many people think they deserve to rot away in prison, and others feel like they have served enough time and should be set free when you consider what they were experiencing at the hands of their father. And that is the highly controversial case of two brothers who viciously gunned down their parents and claimed imperfect self-defense, the Derpigs, who might have been victims, Lyle and Eric Menendez. That is crazy.
1: Okay, so what are your thoughts? Are you swaying towards they've served enough time, or do you think that, yeah, they should
0: just rot in prison? I don't know. This, like I said, I am on the fence with this one. I 100% believe that the sexual abuse was taking place. I don't think that that was a false claim at all. But even so, can you viciously murder your parents and rejoin society?
1: Well, there's been many that have.
0: It's true. Sometimes it works out, though, and sometimes it doesn't. And part of the reason why I wanted to watch the entire trial is because I was kind of mesmerized by them because at some points I was like, oh, yeah. Red flags, creepy, they're dirtbags, 100%. And then other parts during their testimony and their trial, I was like, oh, man, I just felt so much compassion and felt sorry for them.
1: I think it can be both, Christy.
0: This is one of the first cases where I am definitely both. But Melissa, how do you feel about it?
1: Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think they need some compassion for the abuse that they endured. But I also think they acted like dirtbags, so they need to be held accountable for that. Where I'm kind of sitting... Is that at least they should be eligible for parole and have to have a parole board decide if they've reformed enough.
0: Or that they should maybe have that retrial and have that evidence put in and let a new jury decide.
1: Definitely that's what I think should happen because I think it might change and allow them to have the ability to be paroled because they've served their sentence now in reference to other people that have done similar crimes.
0: That 33 years is enough. Yeah. I can see why it's a controversial case. But people are going to rather agree with me or disagree with me because people feel strongly about this case. So listeners, weigh in. We are incredibly curious what side of the fence you fall with this case.
1: And we'll be back again next week with another case.
0: But until then, see ya. Bye. Testing, testing, because Christy moved her mic.
1: She has been doing a lot of other things. It's okay. <laughs> we are multitaskers. If we weren't, oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> Did I throw you off? No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is like cringing because we're using the word cray cray. <laughs> I think that's out now. Oh,
1: we're so behind the times. <laughs> Can we be retro yet? <laughs> hey, we're
0: classics. Nice. It's such a good song. There's like this whole Spanish part of it that I don't even know what they're Uh. singing, but I dig it.
1: (laughs) We just had this whole conversation about using slang words that are too young for us. I'm like, I dig
0: it. (laughs) Hey, that's a retro word. Oh, (laughs) okay. We were saying that first. (laughs) I think they said that in the 60s, didn't they? Yeah. (laughs) It's been around the block a couple of times. (laughs) It's an oldie but a goodie.
1: And I didn't even realize I said it. I'm gonna stop laughing because i'm shaking the table <laughs> would it have create? did it create did it create a- did it create Does it- i'll get it tough nuggets deal with it now <laughs> don't any of my kids get that suggestion
0: <laughs> oh yeah be careful what you preach you might be eating them words i'll spell them out for you on nuggets <laughs> We could stop for we the nugget meal both. on the way. <laughs> yeah, we can always do both. Are you kidding? We can get the nuggets on the way, eat in the car, do the escape room. We can share it with, okay. Yeah. Yep. And then when afterwards, we'll go to the restaurant where we can sit down and relax and eat another meal. Why not? Beautiful. It's both
1: our, is the answer. It's our
0: staff party. We might as well <laughs> live it up. And yes, it's always both. And it was said that she even be, and it was said that she, and it was said And it was, how was it said, Christy? (laughs) I don't know. It was just said. (laughs) Stop writing, Christy. I'm like, but I can't. (laughs) (laughs) But you have to edit this. Too bad. (laughs) That's a later you problem. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to have lots. I'm like, my bloopers are done. (laughs) Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts.
1: Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents?
0: We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.